90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, pretty excited. Why are you excited? <laughs> well, number one, because the semester's over. <laughs> but number two, I got my new PC in yesterday. Oh, what'd you end up getting? I wound up going with the um, Dell XPS 13 with the touchscreen and the right. uh, i7 processor. How do you like it so far? It's so tiny. <laughs> <laughs> the 13s are small. They are. I had that. I had a big Lenovo, like a 17-inch thing, and it was a monster, which is probably why I wound up breaking it. Breaking it, but um, yeah. So he's super little, but uh, it's pretty awesome. I both hate and love it. Right? You get this new shiny thing to play with, and you open it up, and you're like, oh, none of my stuff is on here. <laughs> <laughs> so that's taking me some time. Yeah, there's always the first month that's, let me just open, oh, no, let me find the disc. Yep. Uh, I guess we don't find discs anymore. No, uh, we don't. Which you, is, you have to go uh, do the download. and Traumatizing to me, but yes, exactly. <laughs> um, it does have an SD card reader, though, so you would be happy about that. Yes, that's nice. I will be missing that on the Mac. <laughs> yep. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's got that, but it doesn't have anything else. <laughs> and it's got these yeah. Thunderbolt ports, which I don't have anything that uses that. What is going towards using Thunderbolt? Is this all gamer stuff? I don't know. I think they're really fast. You know, you can get hard drives and raids and that kind of thing that use Thunderbolt because the transfer okay. speed is insane. Right. Yeah. And that's what I thought. And I always thought that was sort of an Apple-only product, but I guess Apple helped co-develop it. I did some reading into this because I just didn't understand why I needed it. I think Intel... Mm -hmm. was one of the developers because it used to be called something else and yeah and then it was thunderbolt and now the new usb-c ports on the new macbook pro are usb-c and thunderbolt ah uh, gotcha yeah yes i think i saw some of that when i was shopping around so one day there will be one universal plug but we're not there oh, <laughs> uh, and by one universal plug i mean there will be different universal plugs <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> i was like you young idealistic kids <laughs> <laughs> but you know there's that comic about you know none of these existing standards do what we need to do so we're going to make a new standard <laughs> oh, so true just like in geology this is not quite like that so let's name it something slightly different <laughs> right <laughs> um, it's always different by a vowel <laughs> or two um so you've been busy though much busier than i have i'm just sitting in my computer playing with electronics which is odd for me but yeah, no, it's uh, it's been pretty busy. I was at out at AGU last week, as we discussed during our fun hundredth, mm -hmm. <laughs> and of course, being me flying, <laughs> uh, there was a, a snowstorm that went through Chicago and shut it down. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I ended up getting rerouted. So I left San Francisco at eleven p.m. on Saturday. Oh. oh. Flew overnight through Washington D.C. And then ended up, let's see, I landed in State College at about 9.40 on Sunday morning and then drove to Terre Haute for the next eight and a half hours to try to beat freezing rain out of the state oh, and stayed the no. night. And then drove another day down here. I'm in Arkansas now. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so it was three days of very not fun travel. Oh, yeah. That does not sound not sound good at all. So you, you bid State College adieu for a while, huh? For a while. I'll be back in February. Yeah. Nice. We'll have to pre-record then because I remember how uh, dissertation defenses went, but 
Yes. <laughs> uh, mine is pretty good. I'm sure yours will be just as wonderfully easy. So, uh, Let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but instead of talking about all the stuff we're doing on break, we're actually still going to be talking about science, right? <laughs> we are. <laughs> You're going to make me keep thinking, even though it's winter break, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've been getting lots of great feedback. We did get lots of feedback from the last show. And a lot of people really enjoyed when we talked about uh, doing secondary electron uh, mapping with an SEM. And somebody even suggested that we do a Basics of Geophysics series, which I think is a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I thought before we leave electron microscopy, we should talk about another technique that you can do, which is EBSD, or Electron Backscatter Diffraction. Uh, that sounds fun. We do a lot of this when we're looking at R. So um, this is just another thing that we use. And we talked a little bit about the backscatter detector, but we said we'll talk about that. And here's the show where we're going to talk about it. <laughs> but yes. when you're using um, electron backscatter, it's different than secondary electrons, and you can image different things, which is the whole point of having this super fancy thing that uses a bunch of different detectors. And this sort of gets down and looks at the crystalline structure of materials. Right. So that that does mean that what you're looking at needs to be crystalline. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Not blobby. Yeah. So it can't be amorphous. So, you know, looking at a, a glass isn't going to tell you much. Mm-hmm. But looking at a metal or um, pretty much any mineral, yeah. including ice, <laughs> will uh, <Yeah. laughs> we'll tell you all kinds of interesting things about it. And if you're familiar with X-ray diffraction or neutron diffraction or honest to goodness electron diffraction in a transmission mm. electron microscope, scary. <laughs> uh, this is very similar to that. Uh, but we use it to look at the fabric of the material because generally if you put a piece of rock in, it's going to have many mineral grains. And with this, you can tell a lot about each of those grains and see if there is any preferred orientation of them, for example. Right. So this is, I will say that this is not something that we necessarily use our backscatter detector for um, because I am not a mineralogist, nor do I claim to be even close to that <laughs> not even close those people are whole different people um and so we use it a little bit differently but let's talk about sort of ebsd in general and um what you're going to what you're going to see when you shoot these electrons out okay yeah so it's going to start out just like before right right so same it's the same column and everything else just what you're sensing when you shoot your little electrons from our gun, accelerated down the column, same thing happens as before, but when it interacts with our little crystals in our sample, that's what stuff gets different. Right. So one of the things that we said happens was backscattering, where the electron goes into the sample, hits a heavy thing, which in <laughs> the atomic rule will be a nucleus, right, and bounces back. And these can bounce out at any angle. Mm-hmm. And I, it's probably not worth going into whether this is, you know, are we going to consider this elastic or inelastic or any of that? <laughs> but yes, <laughs> it goes in and it hits something heavy. And it could be coming in at you know, several different incidence angles, I'm going to say. Right. And it can bounce out at any angle. Mm-hmm. So it could 
go anywhere. And that's not very useful because our detector does not go all the way around the chamber, right? Right, exactly. It's just this little inch long kind of curvy thing. Right. hangs out up there. But some of these electrons will exit at what's called the, our, the Bragg angle or a Bragg angle, depending on what the crystal structure is. And that's something that should sound familiar if you've done any kind of diffraction, X-ray, neutron, optical, anything like that before, right? Right. And so, man, I had to, I haven't talked about Bragg angles in quite some time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's for sure. But so this is going to be um, different for different things, right? Yeah. So you can think of it as, imagine a crystal is made up of these planes of the structure, right? Mm-hmm. Crystal faces, maybe. Lattice planes, something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're not mineralogists. Um. No, we're not. <laughs> I do know. Okay, so imagine those, if you've even taken regular chemistry, nothing to do with rocks at all, those little ball and stick models that you get to build out of, you know, straws, or you can do this with your kids with marshmallows and toothpicks. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> we have really fancy ones that cost a lot of money that sit around in our mineralogy lab. Too. And so this is what we're talking about. You've got these atoms, and they're held together by these bonds. And so when we talk about different types of rocks, these form what we say is a crystal lattice, right? Because they're this very orderly uh, construction of a very specific chemical set, right? Right. And I mean, that's part of what it means to be a mineral, is you have exactly. a regular crystal assemblage. Yes. So... Yes, Imagine, okay, you make, uh, let's, let's take ice, for example, since that is my favorite mineral. And <laughs> which you, you have to you have, have these... this Peltier cooling stage to keep ice in your SEM, which is really expensive, <laughs> right. but go ahead. <laughs> so you have these rings of water molecules. Mm-hmm. And so if you were to look down the crystal axis, what we call the C-axis, you would just see a bunch of water molecules and rings. Right. So these six-sided rings. Mm-hmm. Each of those, there's a sheet of rings, and you stack these sheets on top of each other. Mm-hmm. The spacing between those sheets is indicative of the composition of those layers. It's going to change based on all kinds of, you know, what kind of bonds are happening between the different molecules. In this case, it's just water, so it's pretty simple. Right. Yeah, exactly. But there are some mineral formulas that are half a page long, really. So. Yeah, and there's some things like clays where, oh, now you've got uh, a calcium ion substituted in here instead of potassium or something. So that's going to make the the layer a little thicker. Mm -hmm. Right. All kinds of stuff. Yep. But the spacing between these, imagine now that you have, uh, you could think of it as a wave, it's wave-particle duality, right? Yep. <laughs> Coming in, and it hits the nucleus of one layer and bounces off. Mm-hmm. And let's say it comes down and it hits the nucleus of something in the layer below that mm-hmm. and bounces off. Right. Let's, if they're both coming in at the same angle, and they're both going to bounce out at the same angle, given the frequency of that wave coming in at a certain angle or angles, those waves that bounced from the top and the layer below it are going to constructively interfere. Right. And so you get a large signal out. And at every other angle, they're destructively interfering to some degree at some point to the point of total extinction. Exactly. So if you were to make a plot of intensity of reflected wave versus angle you would see a peak and then you can compare that peak to other stuff and figure out what it is right so you know <laughs> which is a super simplification in, <laughs> and you can calculate what that spacing is we call it the d spacing mm-hmm. and so we generally are talking about 
spacing and angstroms here. Yeah, tiny, tiny, tiny. Right. And for different minerals, we know very well what that spacing looks like. Right. And of course, with more complicated structures that have inner layers and all kinds of stuff, uh, it's not a single peak for each mineral. Each mineral has what we call a diffraction pattern, and we have a big database of these. Mm -hmm. Right. And so once you do that, you can start to figure out what's actually in your sample. Because actually figuring out what phase things are in is a lot more complicated in rocks than you would think. It, it really is. You know, you go to a material science lab, and they're looking at, they're trying to make a thin film of something. So they know what's in it because they made it. Right. <laughs> when you're putting something random into the machine, it is not like CSI. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's well, in, in a way it is because it's basically stuff you scraped off your shoe or off the ground <laughs> <laughs> right. and you stick it in there. And, I mean, you can have a really a good idea about what stuff, but you also don't know what those little microscopic things feel, filling the cracks are. You know, we get really weird minerals that fill these tiny cracks. And that's not something that you can just look in an optical microscope and figure out. And you don't get it from uh, secondary electrons, like we talked about on our last SEM show, at all either. And so when you start to use these backscattered electrons, how we use them is um, we don't actually sort of create these maps um, we have a separate detector that we use to do this, but we look at backscattered electron imaging a lot to make another image. And we look at that next to the secondary electron image because, as we talked about before, that's really good for topography. But then these backscattered electron images are good for composition. Not saying this is this, but there's different composition. And so we actually have software that combines those two images and makes a really comprehensive image of the thin section we're looking at because a lot of times if you remember or if you haven't listened to it yet <laughs> we look at these rocks in thin sections so they're a 20 micron slice of rock glued to a piece of glass and then highly polished so there's not a lot of topography right at all <laughs> i mean which is the goal <laughs> right yes exactly <laughs> just what we coat it with um and <laughs> and so we want to see you know, compositional differences too. And by combining those two, the BSE image and the secondary electron image, you can clearly see in these flat spots, which like you said, that's the goal of polishing the thin section is that it's all flat, the different crystals that are interlocking with each other that you may not have seen in optical or in secondary. They just look the same. It's this grayscale, but the BSE starts to give you density differences a lot better due to these differences in the crystalline lattice. And you can start to see interaction of similar looking minerals a lot better. So that's kind of how we use our SEM. Right, so you can make a lot of these different kinds of maps. So backscattered, secondary, and then you can even make a diffraction map where you go to, let's say each pixel, you would probably downsample this some. The microscope would collect one of these diffraction patterns, determine what the orientation of the crystal axis is, mm -hmm. and then you color the map by the orientation of the crystal axis. Mm -hmm. And what's cool about that is if you see a bunch of different colors everywhere randomly, you know that it doesn't really have any structure. It's just a bunch of things that crystallized <laughs> in whatever orientation. Right. Uh, there are mineralogists screaming oh, at yeah. their radio right now. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> if you see a consistent coloring or a pattern you know that, for example, uh, it's been sheared. And so all of these crystal axes have become aligned. 
So that's a rock type that we don't look at a lot. Um, well, I never look at it all, really, is metamorphic rocks. And so this is somewhere where this would happen, right? And you have a recrystallization of these rocks when you apply heat and pressure to them. And then you start to shear them through whatever weird tectonic process they're undergoing. And so then you're going to create... Um, the crystal lattices are going to be all aligned in a certain direction, and you can tell all kinds of stuff about it then. Right. So imagine, you know, olivines in the mantle that are under extreme heat and pressure, uh, be gaining what we would call an LPO, lattice preferred, lattice preferred orientation. Oh, look at you, geologist. <laughs> yeah. And I, I know that they make these uh, these pole figures that are hemisphere projections oh, of are, all these crystal orientations. These are but, painful. <laughs> They're, they're very much like stereo nets, if you are familiar with those. Mm. And they take a long time to get used to. Yes, yes they do. Uh, Just... And I, I think we need to have an entire stereo projection show because Ooh. they're really great once you understand them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a big deal for PMAG, too, because we use them in a slightly different method, too. So, yes, we should have that show, but we'll have to learn how to understand them first before we talk about it. <laughs> oh, the math is great. If, if you like... <laughs> If you like math that's elegant, uh, it's a great way to look at it. But <laughs> the graphics are pretty easy too. It's it's a circle with some dots on it. So <laughs> right. Uh, but what's really cool about it, so that actually leads into really well. You when you get an, a diffraction image from an EBSD detector, which we'll talk about in just a second, you get all of these like highway or line looking things. Mm-hmm. And what that actually is, they're called Kikuchi bands. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, these are projections of the crystal planes onto that 2D detector. Oh. See, and these are crazy looking. <laughs> and so you get all kinds of things. If you're looking, you see symmetry, you see mirroring, you can look at it. And if you're experienced, you can say, oh. That's monoclinic, just by the symmetry that you see in these bands uh -oh. on the image. This is nothing like what we do. So mm -hmm. I don't, yeah, I looked up these Kikuchi bands. Cause, I mean, yeah, I've seen them before, but the Wikipedia page on them has some pretty gnarly looking um, <laughs> pictures of silica and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, so think about it. if you've got uh, something that has multiple planes inside it, you know, uh, some kind of ho hollow tube that you could see through. And there are pieces of paper inside at different angles. Mm -hmm. Those would be planes of the crystal lattice, let's say. Right. And if, if you look at it from the side, you would see lines in different orientations, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Those are the projection of the crystal planes in 2D. So if you were to take a picture of that, that would be very similar to an EBSD image. That's pretty cool. Uh, that also means that you're taking something that is oriented in three space with a three space plane orientation and mapping it all into 2D. So mushing it down. Yeah. And, then... and to make it more complicated, <laughs> oh, the setup man. for these inside the SEM, when you do this, you have the sample at a really high angle to the pole piece. So like your stage has rotated. So the stage is sitting 70 degrees from horizontal mm -hmm. when you do this, which is terrifying. Oh, yes, because your stage can also rotate and hit your detectors, which is, yes. Yes. Really scary. <laughs> so the stage is rotated 70 degrees from horizontal. The electron beam comes down, hits the sample, and then 
bounces out, the, the backscattered electrons bounce out roughly to the direct right of the sample. So the detector is normally at a 90 degree angle to the pole piece. This geometry just makes placing the detector and the pole piece in the sample for roughly what you expect these diffraction angles to be work. Right. Because it's not... Uh, a lot of SEMs don't have little cameras inside it like ours does either, so... I can't imagine trying to get this correct <laughs> yes, without having it's... that. <laughs> The one I ran had the camera inside as well, which okay. was incredibly nice. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, because just talking about having to do this scares the bejeebas out of me. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> <laughs> the stage is pretty big, and yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so these come out, and the detector, it's similar to the secondary electron detector, sort of. Uh, we're not trying to... You remember the secondary electron detector, the Everhart Thornley detector? Mm-hmm. had this uh, potential on it that would kind of suck in the secondary electrons, right? Right. We we wanted to pull them and accelerate them towards the detector because we needed to collect as many as we could. Yeah, Here, really we weak. don't want to do that. <laughs> Correct, because these are not really weak. <laughs> well, that and we don't want to change their orientation. Right. Be- the angle that they're coming out of. Right, because that's the whole point. <laughs> right. So what we end up doing is we have a phosphor screen you could think of this kind of like if you remember the big cathode ray tube tvs uh if you remember further back like the apple 2e's that just had the green screens <laughs> think of a miniature version of that screen and every time an electron hits it it produces a little flash of light on the phosphor mm-hmm. that is how those screens worked in right. reality there was an electron gun pointing at your face hitting the phosphor and writing characters on it <laughs> scary yeah so <laughs> this Works like that. And then there's a CCD camera behind it that just does a time exposure. Mm-hmm. So you're and gonna... it captures all of these little flashes of light and adds them to the photo. See, we have never done this with our SEM. Oh, you should. It's it's really cool. Yeah, yeah, we really should. I'm, I'm kind of sad. I was kind of sad reading these notes before the show. I was like, hmm, this is not what we use it for. So that's kind of cool. Of course, we also have a, another detector that just plugs in, and you just say, "What's this thing made of?" And that's pretty easy too. So <laughs> that, that's your CSI detector, basically. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so this the, the one really nice thing about producing these EBSD maps mm-hmm. is EBSD is pretty quick. Yes. So the camera is going to be scanning at something like uh, 1.6 kilohertz or so on a lot of machines. And you do have to raster over the sample. You know, you have your little yeah. narrow beam and you have to move it around. But it's all software, right? Yeah, exactly. So you vacuum your chamber down, you draw a region of interest, and you say produce an EBSD map yep. using these settings, and you go home. Yep. Or go get a coffee because it doesn't really take that long for the things we use it for, and then it'll be done by the time you come back. Yeah. Now, the disadvantage is the beam is sitting on a given spot. Well, when we're when you're producing a secondary image, the beam is scanning very fast. It's kind of like a TV, right? Because you can move the sample and watch the image update. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the beam's only on a given spot on the rock for a tiny fraction of a second. Right. Here, the beam is sitting on one pixel for a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Which... So you, you get charging issues, yes. for one thing. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, so you need to do environmental because coding and doing EBSD 
it, it decreases the EBSD effectiveness a lot if you coat. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Um, we still use coated samples, um, but we also, like I said, we also have a special detector that, or a special gun that we use um, to do this. So that's nice because we don't have to worry about that. Right. And uh, for producing these crystal orientation maps, the big thing is you're going to hit some of the atoms in your coating. Yes. Yeah. So that, that causes a problem. It, it can be done, but they recommend you do an environmental SEM. The other thing is you actually damage the sample. Yeah, I was just burning is a problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which, I mean, you can damage the sample anyway. It's not in, you can do it however you're using the gun if you let it sit there for too long, but especially in this. Yeah. And then you're hosed because you've excavated this piece on your sample that is no longer useful right so you've actually chipped away bits and this is especially a problem if you have something that say has, has hydrocarbon in it <laughs> yes because now you also have fouled up the inside of your chamber and it's going to take an undergrad a while to clean that microscopic fire it's not a good thing <laughs> i said we made lightning in ours before so <laughs> <laughs> so that's basically how EBSD works, and it's cool because it gives you the actual 3D orientation, which... Uh, do you remember doing optical pole figures? Uh, 20 years ago, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So you can look at a thin section of a mineral under a microscope, and using these uh, these special lenses... Do you remember what they're called? Uh, the Bertrand lens. That one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can switch that in, and you can get what's called a pole figure, mm -hmm. and as you rotate the sample... You can watch these interference patterns come up in, you know, in the eyepiece. You're looking at them. Yep. You're looking at optical interference, optical diffraction. Right. And you can say this crystal is monoclinic. This crystal is triclinic. Right. We actually do this quite a lot <clears> because that little interference figure, um, the curve, uh, and this is the part that I don't remember what the little lines are called, um, but the curves of those and then, you know, whether you have positive or negative and you can tell that. And then you can also start adding like quartz plates and colored plates, and you'll get um, optical interference that way and tell about the crystal structure too. Right. So I, they're the optical equivalent of Kikuchi bands. Right. Yeah. But they're, you know, we actually use this quite a lot in intro mineralogy. It's one of the things that you do basically on every single, <laughs> every single mineral you find. And it's really hard because if you imagine a rock and like you were talking about earlier, John, it's just randomly crystallized. It's hard to find a C-axis that just is, happens to be perpendicular to your eyepiece. Right. <laughs> and so there's a lot of frustration from students going through these, you know, one inch by half inch um, thin sections, trying to find the one grain that's oriented perpendicular. <laughs> well, and if it's not, if it's not really that close to perpendicular, but it's not way off, then you get a... Again, you get a 2D projection of the 3D plane. Right, right. So exactly. you get Kikuchi bands projected at an angle. And if you're very familiar with it, you can still read that. Right. <clears throat> but if you're not, it can give you some spurious, um, spurious right. data. <laughs> but it's nice because if you're looking through the microscope and you don't know what a mineral is, which is generally the state I'm in, <laughs> uh, you can, by using things like extinction, looking at these bands, you can narrow it down to, well, it's got to be something in this family. And then by yeah. knowing a little bit about where the rock came from, you can generally get a pretty good guess at what it is. Yes, exactly. And like I said, we definitely use that all the time. So, <clears throat> Yeah, so that's that gives you the 2D orientation. EBSD gives you the true 3D orientation, but we don't have 
a bunch of SEMs in a lab for undergrads to use during mineralogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not at all. So you got to do it the hard way, which is yes. searching for that parallel C-axis grain to look down. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the rest of us did for hours. <laughs> right. And I know for ICE, they actually have setups where they take cross polars, rotate them in some, you know, like a one degree increment or so. Mm-hmm. and then rotate the sample and take a bunch of, bunch of pictures. And after taking hundreds of pictures, by mapping the intensity and knowing the orientation of the sample and the orientation of the cross polars in each, they can produce a C-axis map uh, automatically. Yes. I, so <clears throat> those little mach- they have machines that do this. Like you yes. stick your thin section into it. You're not looking at anything. Right. And it, do- and it takes all these pictures and does that for you. And then you just, you know, hook it up to your computer and look at it. Those things blew my mind. I just found out about those a couple of weeks ago. Yes, I'm thinking that might be a fun winter project. To build one? Yeah. <laughs> and here I was just going to organize my closet. <laughs> <laughs> there's, uh, there's those. And actually at AGU, uh, I saw somebody had a setup it was a CNC gantry, so a computer-controlled gantry with mm-hmm. a really nice, you know, some kind of Nikon SLR on it and a, a macro lens. And it would, you could put thin sections in this container under it and say, scan all of these thin sections. It would go around overnight and take hundreds and hundreds of pictures. And you could see features. It, it, it was, uh, and it would stitch the pictures together. So it was making gigapans of thin sections. Oh, man. <laughs> so you could see features that were a few microns on the thin sections. And you could put, you know, 50 thin sections in the thing and let it rip. That's awesome. It was really, really cool. And they were showing that one of the things they've been developing is it can also change the camera's distance from the sample automatically. Mm-hmm. So by doing that... If you had a sample that had topography instead of a flat thin section, mm-hmm. oh, you by doing that it. and seeing what part of the image was in focus at what uh-huh. height, uh-huh. it created a 3D photo drape nice. over the actual topography. Nice. Yeah. That's exciting. <laughs> that is exciting. So you can build your own SEM. You can build your own one of these. It's all actually surprisingly possible. <laughs> Um, not to say that it won't be frustrating, but. No, all the frustration, well, not all the frustration, much of the frustration comes in the software to do the data processing. Yeah, exactly. As always. <laughs> yes. Especially with things like these EBSD figures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just say you use it, use your, you just buy this extra, um, <laughs> this extra gun that we stick onto our SEM and do it that <laughs> way. That's the way to go. Yes. <laughs> Well, I think that means it's probably time for us to move on since we've had several pretty long shows. We have. <laughs> Everybody's Sorry. favorite segment that was of the a show. Free cowbell. <laughs> Fun Paper Friday. <laughs> My cowbell <laughs> fell over as I was trying to quietly pick it up. <laughs> so, this is a listener fun paper. Uh, it was sent to us by Steve Bryant. Mm hmm. And let me tell you, this is something I never would have even thought of looking at. Nope, not even close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so this this paper is entitled, So Big As Big May Be, right? And Tracking Size and Shape Change in Domestic Livestock in London, A.D. 1220 to 1900. Um, and it is by Thomas et al. Well, and, you know, Thomas Holmes. 
which I thought was nice. And uh, Moors. <laughs> you just wanted to say it because it's a British thing. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> uh, this paper actually looked at what effects the size of things like cattle, sheep, pigs, and chickens that we generally use as food and did things like disease or selective breeding change their size as we continue to utilize these assets over, you know, a 600-year period or so? Right. And so that's the, that's the main thing I took away from this. Um, this is a huge time period, and they had over 8,000 measurements on these bones of these different foodstuffs. <laughs> um, and that was a pretty impressive um, sample size. This is what I thought was really cool about this paper. That they, there's a database Mm -hmm. that is maintained. And this database, it was, here's a bunch of measurements. And we don't know what we're going to do with them, but we need to put them all in one place. So here, (laughs) it was all categorized. They said it had not been really mined Mm -hmm. that thoroughly. This was, uh, let's see, since the early 1990s, the Museum of London Archaeology has systematically recorded zoo, zoo archaeological data in a single database and they've got a citation for that Mm -hmm. and this was a hey we have all of this data let's go make a query and see what comes out yes and some kind of interesting stuff came out yeah and that's the power of having all of this data easily accessible uh yeah so way to go museum of london archaeology because um yeah that's it's a staggering amount of data yeah, so they actually ended up getting 105 sites that were multi-period, <laughs> uh, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting that they said London's archaeology is uh, stratified. <laughs> there's th- th- there's layers of trash yeah. <laughs> from different <laughs> from different eras. Oh, I thought that was pretty funny too. Because <laughs> they were talking about worried about the um, the samples, you know, mixing together. Right. So they did some dating on our. Well, they used dating information where it was available. Otherwise, they had to do things like, well, it looks like maybe this many bones from this site were misclassified, and that's a small enough percentage. It's not going to hurt our analysis, or it's a large enough percentage. We needed to worry about it, and we threw that site out. Right. Exactly. And so they looked at a specific sort of, they broke up everything into different phases, right? Because, I mean, it's 1220 through 1900. Um, So there are quite a few. And then they even have sub-phases in some of them as well. Right. So there were some that were in like 1220 to 1300 and then 1230 to 1350. Mm -hmm. Uh, They always overlapped a little bit. Right. Right. Uh, But they did this around things that were important, like the Black Death. Uh, right. I was really excited to see how things changed um, both b- before and after that, you know, did that actually, because it's not something I guess I would have thought of changing how, that the Black Death would have changed how people either bred livestock or, you know, or how it affected the livestock in general. Right. And it turns out it, it did, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did. Um, they talk about how, I thought this was cool too. They don't use goats at all. They just use sheep or some sheep goat mixes, um, but they don't use goats because um, there were a bunch more sheep, basically, was one of the reasons. (laughs) And I guess there's a chance of getting those mixed up a little bit. Um, 
And then there weren't a lot of pigs, but there were yeah. a lot of sheep and a lot of cattle and a lot of chickens. Tons of chickens. Yes. Uh. Yes. <laughs> Hens specifically. They were looking at that. Um, I thought the bone measurement part, because, I mean, a big deal when you're trying to do this is, you know, is this really a bigger animal or is it just sexual dimorphism, you know? Males are bigger than right. females. Um, but the extent of the measurements of these bones made that actually quite easy to take into account. Because yeah, because you could see the, the distribution and separate it. Right. So they talk a lot about the changes, and I don't remember the exact periods that these change between, but in the sheep, between being <laughs> short and thick sheep versus <laughs> tall and skinny sheep. <laughs> right. And I, thought that was, I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, <laughs> because they were worried about that being a sexual, uh, you know, dimorphism, but it, it wasn't. It was actually a change in the preferred sheep breeding. And the other thing that I thought was interesting, because they looked at this, just like you said, in a lot of different sites. And so they compared um, sites in the city. Were there any differences between like the inner city part where there would be um, or Westminster as well, where there would be more wealthier families versus like on the southern parts where they would be uh, poorer areas. So were the animals smaller in those areas and preferentially larger in other areas? And did that have to do with the dichotomy of class or did it have to do with specific breeding patterns? And it seemed to be kind of random. Yeah, to me. it did. There was a couple of sites that they mentioned that they said that they actually just thought that they didn't engage in the trade that much. And so they wound up, like their cattle became stockier, but they thought that was specific to the region and less right. of, you know, less of a trade thing or a preference thing. It just happened to be that they bred this one type in this one area. And that's what that type happened to look like. That you did see in later years that they said they could definitely see preferential breeding for animals yeah, early on preferential breeding for animals that were just larger because yes. we want more food and right. then as our knowledge of how to do the breeding advanced they said well we actually don't want just large animals we want animals that have better characteristics right and so then they became a little bit more clever about how they were doing it right and it sort of started to change because you didn't see that just bigger and because it you didn't see any changes they figured that they're breeding for something else. Um, there was one other interesting part. Oh, oh, that I thought it wasn't just, so they talk about the Black Plague at first, and I don't know if this was something they went into it thinking about, but I guess there was a really bad sheep disease that actually changed the size of most of the sheep and the proliferation of them, I'm assuming. Um, and that was something I hadn't heard of or thought about. This is one of those studies that... Not only did it uncover some things that once you see them, you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But it's one of those studies that uh, I don't know if I would have ever thought to even try. No. Yeah. Not, <laughs> not at all. Um, I mean, the statistics are really interesting, especially if you're looking at it in sort of a, if you like, you know, sociology type statistics. And yeah, just that. I wouldn't have thought about this one bit, but it is... Um, Kind of interesting socioeconomically and just animal husbandry wise. Right. And the preprints of this are available. So you can click on the link in mm -hmm. the show notes and get the PDF. Uh, the other thing that I thought was interesting is they did everything in a normed log distribution. <laughs> I knew you were going to, I knew you were going to get uh, this. <laughs> 
<laughs> and so they did that because, you know, there was a lot more sheep than anything else. And so they're trying to sort of smear that out, right? Well, they did that. And even up for the bone size, mm-hmm. because the absolute bone size doesn't mean much. Right. And there's a lot of scatter in those measurements because, okay, you've got a slightly smaller sheep, you have a slightly larger sheep, but mm-hmm. they're all part of the same sheep breeding size class. Right. Uh, so what they did would be to normalize based on the mean, and then they did it on a log scale. So for it to be one larger on the log scale, the bone had to be 10 times the size. Yeah. And that also meant that if the bone was within an order of magnitude of the mean, you know, it was, well, they were all within an order of magnitude of the mean. We didn't right. change size yeah. by 10. But if, if the value is zero, that means it is the average bone. The perfect. If yeah. the value was above zero... It's larger, and if it's below zero, it's smaller. So that makes these histograms a lot easier to look at than looking at actual, you know, so many centimeters. If you're looking at log above and below zero, it's a lot easier to think about. Yes. Yeah, I I actually quite appreciated that. Yeah. And this is one of the cases where I'm not saying that it's log abuse. (laughs) Probably it's just because we don't know anything about bones. If we did, you'd probably actually want to see that measurements, but... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it's just one of those things where with a lot of these natural measures, I mean, we do earthquakes on a log scale, right? Yeah. Well, for mm-hmm. other reasons, but yes. <laughs> you're dealing with real data that's noisy data. I, I can kind of see this. Yeah. And some of these plots, you know, we're looking at uh, figure five down here. You can definitely see looking at the histogram. Wow, that is way below the mm. mean size. Mm-hmm. Just at a glance. You yeah. say, oh, the animals were smaller during that period. And that's the early period, mm-hmm. uh, A1 and A2 in this case. Right. So I, I appreciated that. The figures in the paper were relatively, you know, simple black and white bar charts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're pretty easy to follow. They look very and, Excel-y. I don't know how you feel about that. But... Yeah, th- they do look kind of Excel-y. Um, but it's fine. They're, ge- they're, they're doing the, they're showing what it needs to show, I think. But yeah, they, they get the point across mm-hmm. quite well, yeah. actually. So the uh, the preprint, for those of you that don't look at preprints often, that means that all the figures and all the figure captions and all the tables are separate and that everything is spaced more widely than it would be in the final manuscript. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So though the preprint is 50 pages, don't worry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's not that much text. Yeah. I mean, there's a significant amount of text, but <laughs> it was very interesting reading, so it went by very quickly. Yes. So thanks to listener Steve for that paper. Yeah, that, that was, was great. great. Definitely out of our realm. Yes. Uh, <laughs> if you have an idea for a fun paper or for a show topic, which we've got some good ones coming up, uh, especially after the first of the year, we've got some exciting interviews lined up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would love to hear that from you. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, if you just have a little blurb or a suggestion for us and you don't want to spend the energy opening your email, you can <laughs> go to our uh, Slack chat room. We're on the Software Underground channel in the Don't Panic area. Come in and talk to us there. Um, on Twitter, John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin, and together we are at Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 